Welcome to Delegate. I'm Cameron O'Donnell, a DAO governance strategist. And I'm Lawrence Smith, a DeFi and DAO token builder. Welcome to Delegate. We have Peyton Rose and Patrick Jay joining us today, maker governance facilitators. Patrick, Peyton, do you want to kick us off with a little introduction to yourselves and how you got into crypto? Uh, yeah, I can start. Hi, I'm Patrick. I'm the newest governance facilitator at MakerDAO. I was approved quite recently in July to come on board the team. I've been working the governance team at Make since about May last year and have become fully full-time with the team from May this year. Find it really exciting. It's super interesting space to work in and MakerDAO is just a fascinating organization that it's such a pleasure to be part of. I've been in and out of crypto the best part of it of a decade now, slightly over. So I just became aware in about 2011 when one of my housemates at university was mining Bitcoin and using it on Silk Road. That was my introduction. But I wasn't really that convinced, but kept an eye on things. He would tell me about stuff. And then round about 2014, I kind of got into Bitcoin. And then through that, became aware of, <clears throat> excuse me, became aware of Ethereum and was, I think, fairly early in in Ethereum. So pre-DAO hack, like the original DAO I, was when I first got into ETH, but at this time still didn't really have a lot of capital to deploy, disappointingly. I'm st- I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't say I'm a whale. And yeah, I have since kind of kept very close to the industry and Maker was one of those kind of flagship Ethereum projects that always stood out to me as an individual and kept me coming back got increasingly involved in the forums. And then one day saw a post from Long for Wisdom, who is a former governance facilitator at MakerDAO, basically saying, hey, does anyone want to help out with GovAlpha? Sent him a DM and, and that's how I'm here. So that's my story of how I got into GovAlpha and kind of my background in crypto. Right on. Happy to jump in here. My name is Peyton Rose. I go by Pros11 online and I'm the other maker governance facilitator. I once called Long for Wisdom the senior governance facilitator in a GNR and he didn't like that and I can see why now. I'm kind of similar to Patrick. Uh, I guess I joined a little bit earlier. I was November of 2020 at Maker and then came in, worked through the decentralization phase at Maker, onboarded with GovAlpha in April of 2021. And a few months later, I think it was also in July of 2021, I became elected as a governance facilitator. So that was my kind of maker journey, how I got there was, uh, again, somewhat similar to Patrick. And in, in university, uh, I had friends using Silk Road, and I was like, okay, that's not going to last. I forgot about Bitcoin for a while, and then around 2016, I was like, oh, this is still here, and, and got really into it again. There's a really funny podcast recording I have on my computer of me trying to explain Bitcoin like around that era, and it, it's, it's pretty cringe, but... <laughs> You got to start somewhere. And oddly enough, I found my way into Maker through through Coinbase Earn. They would give you a few dollars for learning about different cryptos and how the protocols function. Most of the time, I was like, sure, on my lunch break, give me a few dollars. I'll, I'll trade them at some point. And then I came to MakerDAO as in collateralized lending. And I was like, oh, wow, this is what like really rich people do. And here Maker is and allowing anyone to do it with their crypto permissions. And that got me into DeFi, playing around. And before I knew it, Maker Government said something that made me unhappy. So I went to the forum to complain and just never left. Between you both, incredible contributions to Maker, right? From authoring MIPs to facilitating MIPs and so forth. Can you describe a little bit what a governance facilitator does? So how do you guys support the Maker DAO? No. Take a stab at it. <laughs> you can correct me where I'm wrong, uh, Patrick. But yeah, so governance facilitator, it's, it's a pretty essential role for a DAO, right? The fundamental of Maker is that nothing changes at a protocol level without a vote of the token holders. So 
quite basically, the governance facilitator is the one who makes sure that the token holders can vote on things. That there's a clearly defined process to get from idea to consensus to on-chain decision. Practically, that has us wearing lots of hats under the hood. But the fundamental aspect of our job is you need a neutral party who's willing to say, okay, I'm just going to try and enforce the rules you guys make to the best of my abilities. I'll transparently tell all my decisions so you can see, hey, there's anything wrong with my reasoning or something I forgot to take into account. Anyone in the community could call that out. But yeah, we're just the bureaucrats behind the scenes, so to speak, though sometimes we, we end up front and center. Yeah, just to pick up on something Peyton said there and that we're, we're enforcing the rules that, that governance makes. It's not our job to make rules. It's not our job to tell everyone how things should work because that's really dangerous because basically we could then just empower ourselves if you wanted to. So it's really crucial. We are not doing that and that we're responsive to the wills of token holders so anything that token holders vote through regardless of whether or not we think it's a good idea or not we don't give an opinion on that we will ensure that it's carried out to the best of our abilities awesome and i'm curious to know how has the sort of the rules around being a governance facilitator changed over the over both of your tenures at maker and how do you see that sort of shaping up in the future so in terms of how the governance facilitator roles change i would say fundamentally not much, right? We're still doing all the basic stuff we did even before the full transformation into DAO from the foundation. However, the scale has changed quite a bit, which adds a lot of complications, right? It used to be there a handful of core units. We could all meet, talk about whatever we wanted on a one-hour call. Everyone would be happy and we'd leave to, to go do our work. Now that same call has a good 20 <laughs> mandated actors, as we like to refer to them. And yeah, it's not as simple to just say, all right, anyone who has something to say, come up and speak. It takes a lot more organization. And we have a baggage of our past decisions as well. Anytime we decide, hey, we're going to do X, Y, and Z because it seems like the best thing to do now, that kind of sets you on a course. And sometimes you have to course correct. So there's a lot more, I guess, like case law. If you were to look at the traditional governance system, that, that kind of governs how we make decisions that we have to keep in mind now. It sounds like you are supporting the core units and the community in their governance activity. And so can you give us a high level overview of what are the core units and what do they do? And then talk about what it's like working with both sides. Yeah, I can take a stab at that one. A core unit at Maker is a group that's mandated to perform certain actions. So for instance, we have protocol engineering core units that kind of develop all of our well, a lot of our smart contracts and they're responsible for creating the executive spells that, that make state changes to the maker protocol. And they have a mandate that empowers them to do that that's been voted on by MKR holders. Every core unit has a named facilitator. Some core units have more than one. So we have two, for instance, and there's at least one of the core unit that has two facilitators as well. And the facilitators, can, the figurehead of the core unit in the community, and they also have specially mandated powers within the maker governance framework. So a facilitator can propose polls that that go to a vote much faster than other ways to get votes on chain as long as they are related to their mandate. So that kind of comes back to the governance facilitator role because we have to make that ruling. So if, some, if there's a facilitator trying to put something on chain that's not related to their mandate, it'll be up to us to say, hang on, that's not right, you need to stop or we're not going to let that happen. And so that that kind of is how we interact with that. I think we have very good working relationships with the core unit facilitators. I think a lot of them respect our role. Um, and uh, people call, often come to us to say, how do I, what do you think is the best way to do this? Can you have a look at my budget proposal? Do you think it looks okay? 
because all of the core units also have budgets to, to fund their work. We have a team of kind of eight, nine people working with us, including ourselves. And we have a, a budget that the DAO pays us and we use that to pay them and pay other expenses. And, and each core unit will have a similar budget. Yeah, we, we quite often get asked to look at, can you take a look at this? Do you think it looks okay? Does it meet the rules of a budget proposal? And that's how we interface with the core units. And then with the community, again, we'll have people coming to us saying, I want to do X. What's the best way to do that? How do I get that from an idea? And so that, that's quite a lot of us respond to those queries or questions about other people's proposals. Hey, this person proposed this. Why is that allowed? Or is that the, is there another way that should be done? Or how do I get them to make changes to that proposal? So there's a lot of kind of community management in that regard as well. Um thing I might add there is that in terms of community being visible is really important, right? A lot of people will come to MakerDAO that they don't know what to do, right? They have an idea, they have something they're upset about or happy about or what have you. And it's our job to be very visible, to be in the forums, in the chat, accessible and, and willing to help pick the best path forward or at least advise them on what we think might be good for them. It sounds very much so community driven. There's an educational aspect to it and a governance aspect to it. So very dynamic, it sounds so far. Definitely a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. I'd agree. And it's, it's a very privileged position within the DAO because actually we have a number of kind of powers, for lack of a better word, that are kind of restricted to the role of a governance facilitator. No other facilitator has those powers. And it can be things that might surprise people, but it's things like if there's if we discover a big bug in, in a smart contract that's been deployed and is essentially millions of dollars at stake, it's ultimately the governance facilitator that decides, is this just an urgent problem or is that an emergency that we need to act on right away? And so it's all these kind of things that actually behind the scenes, if there's an emergency response, GovAlpha, which is our core unit, will be front and foremost in, in responding to that as well. So although it may seem that a lot of what we do is is kind of community facing and kind of community management stuff, that there is a lot of kind of responsibility as well that comes with the role. With that and with being governance facilitator and obviously having a bit of, of that sort of power, are there any measures in place to stop abuse of powers from a governance facilitator? Is there anything really, maybe I'm overlooking into it, but is there anything that a governance facilitator could do that isn't necessarily safe or 100% safe? Yeah, it's a very dangerous position to have someone go rogue, right? Like the ability to actually certify different spells or proposals that are going on the voting portal. That's certainly a vulnerability of the system. The good news is like the token holders are ultimately in charge. So we can't do anything that the token holders don't approve. That doesn't mean we couldn't try to trick the token holders or take advantage, word something improperly. If there's a bunch of ways where we could have an ethical breach and try to do something malicious, but the token holders are the ultimate arbiter, I guess you would say. We serve at their pleasure. We could be offboarded in, in an instant. That's our key check to, to the system is that at any moment in time, someone could put off an, an offboarding proposal for Patrick Knight and say, hey, you guys did this. This wasn't by the rules. Um, yeah, we need to get rid of you and install someone else. And then the kind of cool thing is, is as much as it is a necessary position, the token holders still can self-organize, right? You can still permissionlessly submit executive proposals on-chain. The issue is it's a lot harder to get people to trust a random on-chain transaction, for lack of a better term, when there's not a quote-unquote official voting portal behind it. So we... Our position is very much one of facilitator. Like it's a really great term because it, it does really encompass what we do in terms of making sure token holders are able to express themselves. So you mentioned that the community could actually self-organize and push forward a proposal. Have you seen that within your time here? 
Not really. There's been a few random submissions where people do something funny, <laughs> I guess you could say. But by and large, like that's our success metric, I guess you'd say, is that people are willing to participate like in the quote unquote formal process. Like that's why neutrality is so important. People need to feel like that process is a way to get their voice heard. Awesome. Pivoting slightly, I'm super interested in hearing more about governance delegation with a maker. Um, how is it currently working? How is it shaping up? And what do you see for the future of delegation, not only at maker, but for an industry? Yeah, I'll start off on this one. I've been quite involved in the delegation program back from even before I was a facilitator, possibly more than Peyton has been. So Maker's had a delegation program that's been live for about a year now. And this is one of the key things that when Maker was in the foundation before transitioning to the DAO, vote delegation was something that was seen as something that was key for the DAO to function longer term, having some form of working setup. Unfortunately, it wasn't ready at the time of the transition from foundation to DAO, but it got going eventually. So at the moment, we have a permissionless system so anyone can set up a delegate contract maker. And when, when someone delegates to that contract, the MKR is automatically put into the chief, which is our kind of voting contract. So it goes from holder to via delegate contract into the chief. And then the delegate then has the corresponding weight that they can vote with. We have two classes of delegates at Maker. So we have what we call recognized delegates and what we call shadow delegates. So put simply, a shadow delegate is just anyone that has created a delegate contract and then hasn't done anything else. And they, they just have this contract that exists and anyone can delegate to them or not. A recognized delegate is someone that has done that, but also has then identified themselves via the forum and has gone through a fairly minor process of verification, which is they write what we call a delegate platform, which is a manifesto. This is what I will vote for and why. This is what I oppose. And they also attend a public call where members of the community can ask them questions about and we currently have, I think, 23 recognized delegates in Maker, which is pretty cool. But one of the things that sets Maker apart from other protocols that have delegates is that we pay our delegates. And that corresponds directly to having much greater engagement from the delegates into the protocol. Because if they don't turn up and vote and they don't tell people why they're voting, they don't get paid. So there's a massive incentive for people to actually participate in governance. People ask, why do we pay our delegates? Other protocols don't. Maker, way our system is set up with our executive vote process can maybe explain it if needed. The security of the protocol is directly correlated to how much MKR is voting on proposals. So we're effectively paying these people for security when we're paying the delegates because they're the ones that turn up and actually vote. Yeah. Maker is pioneering compensated delegation. So at the absolute forefront of it, could not agree more with your points there, Patrick. Yeah. Where do you see the future of delegation for Maker moving forward? It's a good question. It's slightly difficult to answer because at the moment, there's some quite significant structural changes to the DAO that are being proposed by Runa, who's the co-founder of Maker. And those aren't, haven't yet been voted on. They're being voted on next month. And depending on whether or not those proposals are successful, I think we'll see a divergence of the role of delegates. So under his plans, there there is a role for delegates that's not been fully fleshed out yet that I've seen and written down anywhere. I think he's spoken about it on calls, but he hasn't actually written into his proposal. So at, at the moment, we're a bit of a crossroads. We don't really know where the program's going. So that's a difficult question to answer just now. But in terms of the ecosystem in general, I suspect we're going to see a large growth in delegate um, systems across different DAOs because lots of DAOs are looking to increase participation and it's a means of getting m much more tokens involved in voting decisions and therefore increasing your decentralization. And I suspect we'll see more DAOs starting to pay their delegates, which we're already seeing. We're seeing DAOs using our system of 
calculating payments or basing it on our systems and, and um, iterating on it, which is really cool to see and look forward to seeing that happen. And I suspect what you're going to see is delegates working in multiple protocols. So you'll have a web of delegates throughout the ecosystem, effectively professional delegate um, groups. And we already see that with some of our delegates. You know, we've got Gauntlet, who are delegates at Aave Compound. You have GFX Labs, who are delegates at Hop and also have their own protocol called Interest Protocol that, that they work on. And uh, we've got Flipside Crypto, who are it's multiple protocols as well. Um, in terms of individuals, we have Money Supply, who is a maker delegate and also is a delegate of the protocols as, as an individual. So it's really cool. And it's really cool to see that our delegates are also moving out and, and into other aspects of the ecosystem as well. As a, to be honest, one of the things that you raised there about having delegates working across different projects and protocols, I find that quite interesting because is there any possibility of a conflict of interest between delegates and how do we? How do you guys think about that and assess whether there's a tangible risk? There's definitely a risk, right, of conflict of interest, right? You can have all sorts of actors, whether they're recognized delegates or willing to formally come forward and say who they are and what else they work on, or shadow delegates who you may not know the intentions or backgrounds of. From a governance design standpoint, that's addressed by having the maker token holders ultimately in the driver's seat. Right. At any time, they could remove their delegation. That results in delegates losing pay, right? Because it's calculated still month to month on their MKR weight, their voting percentage, and their communications percentage. So one big factor of that is is the MKR weight. And if they were to do anything, if they were make a proposal that appears to be motivated by something other than interest in maker, they could face the consequence of having their stake removed which is important. It's not just loss of power, right? Because if you're trying to perform a coup, it's okay if it doesn't work to a certain extent. But when it also results in loss of stability, loss of income, it becomes a much harder bar to to get past impropriety. Uh, how much is the sort of the stake for a maker delegate? So what's the potential loss that they could have there if they're a malicious actor? Just being a maker delegate and that potential loss of income is quite strong. You also have like reputation Right. In order to really gain maker share as a recognized delegate, you kind of have to put yourself out there, say what you're about, what else you do in the ecosystem. And crypto is a fairly small circle still. Hopefully that's changing the next few years. But right now it is incredible how fast news travels, how quickly people get jobs at other protocols, like your actions are taking place publicly on the blockchain. So there's not a lot to hide in terms of if you are trying to do something maliciously. And so, Peyton, you actually previously come to crypto from a political science background in terms of work experience, is there anything else you want to add in about delegation? Yeah, absolutely. I majored in political science at my college, has always been an interest, working campaigns, that sort of thing. What's really like powerful around delegation is like just how open and flexible it is. People can turn delegates into parties, right? As as we think of them in terms of political platforms, right? You could have the, hey, we're for this party and we're going to go through all of DeFi and try to make our waves on, under this ideology. Likewise, you could have a fun, <laughs> fun, cool hangout delegation. The fact that it is entirely determined by token holders and not like a an old system of social norms, right? Not to say that social norms don't exist in crypto, but... The fact that token holders, the fact that it's liquid democracy means that at any point token holders can decide this is the type of delegation we see as valuable. And that establishment, I guess you could view it as perhaps just anti-centralizing power, really makes it so the actual governance, the actual politics is much more fluid and much more influenceable by small actors, right? Like obviously if you have a lot of... Um, 
capital. You can deploy it in, in governance ways and make moves. But the social movement, the platform that we give everyone is far more empowering, I think, than in traditional governments where you know, your vote doesn't matter and you can't verify it. And <laughs> there's all these like, problems that exist in traditional government that I'd like to think delegation helps to fix. Definitely. I actually had a question, which I quite relates to this one. I was going to say it for later, but it was one of the most interesting proposals I came across for Maker lately. And it was, a, I say lately, it was a few months ago now, and it was, it was one that was put forward by Rune, which is around the restructuring of MakerDAO effectively into voter parties and functional component DAOs. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think it passed the vote in the end, but I thought it was a really interesting concept. Uh, yes, so that's what I was alluding to earlier. So it actually hasn't been voted on yet. It's going up for a vote in October. Um, we assume that's what Rune's indicated. He hasn't formally submitted it yet. Even all, put, all signed point to an October vote for that proposal. So he's got this idea of what he calls decentralized voter committees, which were initially referred to as parties, and that's analogous to this. So the idea behind a decentralized voter committee is that it's a group of like-minded MKR holders that want to focus on a specific policy area or group of policies, and then they are going to organize themselves and basically all commit to delegate to a delegate that's going to align with their views, which is a really interesting idea. And I think this idea is that lots of small MKR holders can have a, an, an outsized effect if they are able to consolidate and group their voting power together behind a, a figurehead delegate. The role of these DVCs, decentralized voting committees, if the proposals pass and evolve, I think is yet to be fully scoped out. But I would expect them to be fairly prominent in any in any resulting governance structure that that, that we develop if Rune's plan is successful. But yeah, I think that's a really interesting development that we've seen, and it potentially broadens the the pool of MKR that might come forward to support delegates. Another component of Rune's plan is delegation rewards. So the idea being, if someone delegates their tokens, they would they would receive some form of reward either in Dai or MKR from the protocol. And again, that, the idea behind that is that it might encourage smaller holders to start delegating their tokens, because at the moment, our delegates, delegators tend to be on the larger side, people who have significant voting weight. So anything that will try and get people who have maybe less voting weight, who maybe feel like, oh, it's not worth it, I would support that and hopefully see if we can see that in the future. And that's something we've discussed internally as well. Yeah, I, th I think that's really interesting. Even conversations that Lawrence and I have in turn, looking at incentivizing not only governance participation in terms of voting, in terms of being a delegate, but also in terms of delegating your stake, right? So tr trying to incentivize participation from that side as well. Do you see, I think there's a few arguments there right? When you talk about incentivizing participation, one side, you should be participating as a community member, right? You should be participating because you're involved. The other side says you need that little push, right? That little incentive. I'm really curious to know your thoughts more generally about the idea of incentivizing governance. Yeah. So we've been speaking quite a bit recently about groups like Hidden Hand, who are basically this really cool concept of bribing governance to, to make decisions for you, which in a traditional democratic structure is seen as a bad thing or something to be criticized. But because it's on the blockchain and everyone can see it, 
it's actually opens us up to this really cool, transparent idea of paying people for their votes, and everyone can see that happening, and everyone can participate. It's and anyone can go on there and make these bribes. So the way that's being used at the moment is places like Balancer, so we'll direct the gauge to particular pools, and so a protocol. We're not doing it, but for the sake of argument, Maker could come along and say, "Hey, we really want to incentivize people to to use the die pools and the MKR pools. So let's bribe the voters using the using uh, using Hidden Hand or some other similar system." and so it's all about incentives. So it's, you're finding ways to incentivize voters to vote in certain ways or to vote at all, because maybe if they weren't getting any incentives, these ballot holders wouldn't be voting. So we're seeing this happen in the ecosystem. We're seeing the, the real impacts of these of these decisions to use incentives with voters. So it's always good to look around and see how can we adapt these things? How can we incorporate them into Maker? Um, and I'm not saying we should stop bribing people to vote certain ways on Maker proposals. The idea of if you offer rewards people will vote that's your goal if your end goal is to get more mkr voting on proposals then in, then incentivization seems to be a logical step but i know that peyton's got a background of trying to get a proposal through which involved the rewards for voters so i don't know if he could maybe talk a bit about that yeah so myth 49 was my first big undertaking when i got contributing to maker it's titled staking rewards uh, initially proposed as governance rewards but we changed the name because the mechanism didn't actually care if you voted or not it was all about getting maker into our chief governance contract so a little historical perspective there at the time we were really concerned with how much mkr was available on lending markets it was right about the average amount that most maker spells were passed with um technical jargon, but basically in terms of changing anything in the maker protocol, you have to pass an executive spell and you can do anything with these spells. That's what's really cool about governance. People can propose whatever they like. And if the maker holders want it, they can implement it. But if you're an attacker, that's an also a very strong vector, right? You can get control of all the collateral maker and use it for your own game. So making sure the governance contract is secure is really important. So that was the history that Staking Rewards was born into was this kind of apparent security need to get more MKR into the voting contract. And it basically proposed a way of doing that, of offering incentives, a percentage of one of the things that's complicated about Maker is the terms aren't quite right. So one way to think about it would be a percentage of the profits, but at a protocol level, that's not technically accurate. It would be a percentage of the die that we were otherwise going to burn for MKR. But shorthand, you can think of it as profits. And it would, I initially proposed, I want to say like 25% or some fraction of the total excess amount that would otherwise be wasted, instead be sent to the MKR holders who are depositing their MKR in the chief voting contract. Can you speak to the executive votes using continuous approval voting? So can you break down what that means for us? Yeah, that's yeah, that's fine. And actually, we've referenced executive votes a few times throughout the course of this discussion. So I think it's probably good to to give an overview of what they are and why we use the system we use. So, so Maker doesn't have any multisigs that control kind of protocol parameters. We, we use multisigs for things like funding core units. Each core unit will have its own one, but basically, there isn't a multisig controlled by developers that we can go into and use to change the stability fee on, on each day. So anytime we want to do that, we need to do what's called an executive vote. And the way an executive vote works is, as you say, is using this thing called continuous approval voting. In order for an executive vote to pass and therefore take effect in the protocol, it has to achieve more MKR support than any previous executive vote has achieved. So that can be achieved in two ways. It can be achieved by new MKR coming in to vote for that proposal. So which might be the case if there's a malicious governance attack, someone might buy up a load of MKR 
and submit a proposal and put their own MKR into that. Or it can be from people moving their MKR from a previous proposal onto the new proposal. So the previously, say you've got 5,000 MKR voting weight, you reduce the previous executive by 5,000 and put your 5,000 onto the new executive. And then once the new executive vote has enough voting power behind it, then it becomes the what we call the governing proposal and will then take effect in the maker protocol. We do have a built-in time lock. So at the moment that's set to 48 hours, which is also a protection again against anything malicious. So if someone manages to pass a malicious executive vote, we would have 48 hours to try and muster a response. So it's a really cool, intricate system. But this is this again is one of the reasons why we've locked into using our own voting systems and not using things like Snapshot because other protocols will use a Snapshot vote to say we want to change these parameters and then the dev multisig will go in and we'll make the changes and sign them off. So we don't have that. So any protocol changes are directly made by voters in Maker, which is really cool. Uh, so what are the options if there is a malicious executive proposal within Maker? So there are two options, right? So we have this 48-hour window where we can try and cancel it. So what we would do is GovAlpha, the governance facilitators, would be A's with protocol engineering and we would create a new executive proposal that we would submit to the voting portal and ask people to support. And that would basically be what we call a cancel spell. And so within those 48 hours, you can cancel any pending changes. So we would submit that. The problem would be if the attacker has too much MKR for you to defeat it. If someone has come in with 200,000 MKR that they've accumulated, and theoretically, this could be a nation state act, anyone that has significant capital that they can deploy. So there's no way we're going to be able to beat that within 48 hours. So at Maker, we have this other thing built into the system called emergency shutdown. So the way emergency shutdown works is we have a, a minimum threshold, which is an amount of MKR that needs to be deposited into the module, which will then shut down the protocol. So if you've got a, a malicious executive that's going to destroy the protocol, you know, that could be from messing with rates, messing with the value of DAI in the system. It could be trying to steal collateral. These could be really significant things going on, stealing the USDC in the system. So what the response to that be? Would We would encourage people to deposit their MKR into the emergency shutdown module, which would then basically turn off the protocol. And there would be no more generating DAI through vaults. There would be no more, the oracles would all be turned off. And what would happen is the the, the value of DAI would be set at the time of emergency shutdown. And anyone who holds DAI could exchange their DAI for the collateral that's backing that DAI. So the cool thing about emergency shutdown and the way it works in the, with the emergency shutdown module is that any, sorry, any MKR that's deposited is burnt. So that's you have there has to be that economic incentive to do it or in other words an economic disincentive not to do it it's not something that someone's just going to do because they're going to they're going to lose all that mkr that they otherwise could have just sold so there has to be a good reason for people to want to do it and in terms of capture of the protocol by a malicious actor and also yeah we want to make sure that people aren't just doing it because they, they want to troll us so there's a lot of work that goes into making sure that the level that the emergency shutdown module is set at this minimum level is high enough or uh, but also low enough to be so high enough to be a deterrent but also low enough to be feasible so we recently increased it a few months ago just because the value when the crypto market crashed the value of mkr fell and so it was becoming more economically viable to try and shut down the protocol and i think there's some ongoing discussions about whether we need to maybe reduce it a little bit just because it might be a bit too high at the moment but we'll we're not really locked into any decisions on that at the moment so yeah so that's what we do in, in the event of a malicious executive proposal yeah i really like the idea especially with the, uh, the incentivizing it as well and making sure it's not a lose yeah exactly 
there's also a, we have done the same process before. So when DAI moved from being single collateral DAI to multi collateral DAI, we performed a controlled shutdown of single collateral DAI. So if you're able to get your hands on single collateral DAI at the moment, you can take that to the Maker Protocol and you can exchange it for ETH that was backing that single collateral DAI. And actually, this has actually broken the side peg completely because the value of that ETH is now significantly higher than when when single collateral DAI was shut down. So if you're able to get your hands on some SI for reasonably close to DAI prices, you'll get much more ETH back than what you put in. That's the benefit of having this over collateralized system as well. In the shutdown scenario, DAI holders will still be made whole. They'll still have their value. So what are some exciting developments in the pipeline for maker governance? Yes. So the kind of the main thing that I'm looking forward to seeing, we're hoping to launch in the next couple of months, a gasless voting system at Maker, which is something that's been really requested multiple times by the community. People say, why aren't you using Snapshot, for instance? And, and Snapshot's great. It, it works really well for DAOs that use it. But because of Maker's peculiar setup with our voting contracts, when you want to vote on executive proposals, you need to deposit your MKR into the chief contract. And Snapshot can't read the contents of the chief and say, oh, that person's M- that MKL belongs to that person. And that MKL. So that's the key reason we can't use it because to get people to use Snapshot, we'd have to get them to take their MKL out of the chief, which would leave the protocol vulnerable to governance attacks and executive spell takeovers. So what we're currently doing is our, we have a core unit called Ducks, which stands for development and UX. And we work really closely with them. They run our voting portal and do all sorts of cool stuff for us. And they're working really hard on a gasless voting system, which will be optional. So people can still use the standard voting contract, interact with L1, Ethereum, and vote there. But and apologies to the team if I get any technical details here wrong. But I believe what the technical implementation will be an off-chain signatures on L1, which would then go through a relayer to Arbitrum. And then they'll have a, a second contract deployed on Arbitrum, which will then relay the signature and um, cast the votes on Arbitrum. So this would only be used for non-executive votes, so like things like weekly polls, ratification polls, but the executive vote will still use the current system, use the chief. But the cool thing is, because it's being built in-house, we will be able to read all these deposits in proxy contracts. We'll be able to interface with it, um, maker holders with balance in the chief will be able to interface with it. So it's, it's, it's really cool. I'm really looking forward to that. Because a lot of people who've only got one, two, three MKR say, I'm not going to vote because it's not worth the money. Now that's changed a lot. In the, in the past year, because we've got gas fees in the low double digits now, whereas before they were 100, 200, 300. But I think it will make a big difference in seeing people start to interact with Maker a lot more. And I think that's super cool. The one thing I'll say is that it won't work for anyone using a Gnosis safe, Gnosis safe because you can't sign off-chain signatures using Gnosis at present. I believe that feature's coming and it's on the roadmap, but it's not there yet. So delegates or MKR holders that are, hold, that are interacting with the contracts using a Gnosis safe will still have to pay gas fees. But anyone else should be golden to do that, which will be really cool. On a slight tangent on this, just on, on governance voting in general, and it's not specific to MakerDAO, it's just something that I'm pretty interested to get your view on, is around one of the challenges that I hear cited around governance generally is the token holders tend to drop in the amount of token holders that there are during market downturns and obviously we're in a market downturn at the moment so firstly have you seen any of makers voting participation drop during the market downturn and secondly do you see any benefit in using alternate mechanisms to count as a voter so for example like holding an nft makes you applicable to vote whereas a standard person isn't just able to vote just because they're a token holder and do you think that would fit in with something like me so to answer your first question that's one of the strengths of having a robust delegation program is that you've still got these delegates turning up every week 
to vote. So we're maybe not seeing as big a drop off as other protocols might do, because you still have these people that are incentivized to to wield their voting power. So I, I have to say, I don't think we've seen a particularly big drop off. I don't have any hard numbers to back that up, but I haven't noticed any meaningful drop in participation in any of our recent polls. We're still seeing 90,000 plus MKR voting on executive spells, making them secure. So I I don't think we're we're not seeing that, and that is really important for makeup because as discussed the amount of MKR voting on an executive is our security. If we lose control of that system, there could be really big consequences, which I'm happy to go into if you guys want to do that as well. And then the second question, using NFTs to gate access to voting. There are a few projects we've seen doing that. I know a lot of people in the maker community, like Nouns, Nounsdale, they've been talking about a lot. We see a lot of talk about that. What I would say is it's very difficult to switch your system. We've got a system that's set up and we've got token holders that are voting in that system. They would find it unlikely that they would look to cede their own voting power to NFT holders, but you may see a competitor to make it appear that uses that kind of system. Because the really cool thing about the nouns system um, is it's, it's, they have this kind of really steady stream of income. They've got a huge treasury for such a young protocol and that's just going to keep growing and growing as people want to buy into it and so you've got this kind of flywheel effect which is really cool but i don't see that developing at maker anytime soon just purely just because of the why would token holders vote to have less control i think that's unlikely yeah i think that's a really interesting point because i'm actually pro gating governance in some for some projects not for every project but i think that's a really powerful point of getting that gating mechanism actually in place is not in the interest of the current token holder so that's something really hard to push through yeah, we have had a recent discussion about whether puzzles should be token on the forum. So whether to write a MIP, you should need to hold a certain amount of MKR to do it. And ultimately, that didn't proceed forwards. But that might be something that develops. If someone wants to make that proposal, we'll enforce it. The context for that was like offboarding core units or facilitators. Cause, you know, it's, it's very disruptive to a core unit if they're going through that process. Even if they get, even if MKR voters elect to keep them as a core unit they've still had to spend a month worrying if they're going to lose their income lose their job so someone suggested oh what you could do would be to have a bot a maker bond so the proposer has to put up five ten mkr a relatively small amount although it's still a lot of money to, to some people and if the proposal failed then you would lose your bond and that would then go to the protocol and the idea being it would stop frivolous proposals or time-wasting proposals, but it might, if someone has been acting in a very, sorry, I lost my train of thought there, has been acting in a way that's counter to the interest of the protocol, then there shouldn't be any issue getting people to support an offboarding, and then you'll get your tokens back. So that's one way you could do it. Traditionally, we've been against that. We like the idea of having open governance. Anyone can come and make a proposal, but ultimately, as discussed, if MKR holders want that system and they want to vote through that rule, we'll enforce it if we're requested to. I think lastly, the future of DAO governance, the future of governance in DeFi, what are you both looking forward to? So for me, fundamentally, I think it's more people getting involved. To me, that's a success scenario. We see this in traditional governments where it's quite hard if you don't have voting mandates to get people to, to actually come and express their opinion. And we're seeing that in DeFi governance as well as all of crypto. So to me, that's the final frontier we want to pass. We want to make it open, accessible, and something people actually want to participate in. And as we've talked about, yes, you can do that by giving them rewards, but there's uh, all sorts of things outside of the economic incentive as well that would make people want to vote. I think right now we struggle with complexity. So breaking things down, making it easier for an average voter who doesn't have 10, 20, 30 hours to, to devote to DeFi a, a week, that's going to be really important. And I think 
delegation is a very sensible answer. And as we start to see more delegation systems propagate, we start to see it being easier and easier for people to still fully express themselves, but not have to take on the mental burden of understanding what does that call function do in the smart contract, right? That's you know, maybe sometimes it's about that, but most of the time governance isn't about what this function is. It's about what you're trying to do, the trade-offs you're making in that change and why you think that's a, a good move for the future. So I think as we get more accessible, as we get easier and easier ways for people to shield their voting power, to have power that's not tied to their economic capital, that's when we'll start to see mass adoption. And that's when I think we can quote unquote win against traditional governments. Lawrence, Peyton, Patrick, I think this is bringing us up to time here. First off, thank you so much for joining us. And second, if anyone would like to get involved in MakerDAO governance, you can jump on the forum at forum.makerdao.com, as well as check out MakerDAO on every major social media platform. And as always, reach out with any questions. Till next time.